want a bit of the quiet life. I want a bit of shelf indulgence. If there is reading, give me all of it. Join the show on the Microbrew Radio. Listen to Jim, Wendy, and Emily. Join in the conversation. I want to hear it. I want to read it. I want a bit of self-indulgence. I want to hear it. Good evening and welcome to this week's episode of Shelf Indulgence, Microbrew Radio's book radio show. Um, Tonight program a slightly different direction to our usual where we're going to be looking at literary worlds in general so not one author's worlds but all authors worlds and and what makes a good author's world what makes a literary world uh before we get into that however um i would like i'm joined as always by wendy uh, it's just the two of us again this week and i'm going to start off with poetry corner if i might wendy yeah so I've actually brought three poems, um, and they all kind of relate to our topic today. Mm-hmm. The first is incredibly short, uh, and it's simply two lines that rhyme, and they're written by possibly one of the most famous children's authors in the world, Dr. Seuss. Oh, right. You can find magic... Wherever you look, sit back and relax. All you need is a book. (laughs) I love that. Which leads me into my next choice, which is also written in a children's poem by author Robert Louis Stevenson. These are the hills, these are the woods, these are my starry solitudes, and there the river by whose brink The roaring lions come to drink. I see the others far away, as if in firelit camp they lay, and I, like to an Indian scout, around their party prowled about. So, when my nurse comes in for me, home I return across the sea, and go to bed with backward looks at my dear land of storybooks. Oh, I like that one as well. Not heard that one before, Jim. No, I hadn't before I did a little bit of research. And then to conclude the trio, in much the same theme, I turned to that modern um, children's laureate, who is, she is a fantastic author, Julia Donaldson. Mm. I opened a book and in I strode. Now nobody can find me. I've left my chair, my house, my road, my town and my world behind me. I'm wearing the cloak. I've slipped on the ring. I've swallowed the magic potion. I fought with a dragon, dined with a king and dived in a bottomless ocean. I opened a book and made some friends. I shared their tears and laughter and followed their road with its bumps and bends to the happily ever after. I finished my book and out I came. The cloak can no longer hide me. My chair and my house are just the same. But I have a book inside me. (laughs) I like that one as well. And for me, they all capture really the essence of tonight's show. Mm. 
because it is what is that magic of reading what is that that makes us read why are there in this modern digital age where an entire digital device was developed purely for reading books why is it that still today when cinema and film and in the age of streaming that books are as popular as ever i think i think there are a couple of things to that i think that um i think they're about escapism for uh, you know people read for pleasure don't they and they like to escape the hurly burly and get get lost in a different world and um uh, the, but it's the thing about reading is it's always safe isn't it in that you can escape to a different world you can fight a dragon you can you know jump out of an airplane you can um face a tiger down in a jungle um but at the end of the day you can go home for your tea it's it's all of that is the exposure to that vicariously through the writing of somebody else and i i think it's if you're bitten by the bug when you're a child um, and you get into reading books as a child, I don't think you ever lose that. And also, I think more to that, because we are in this digital age and, you know, the streaming services are threatening to kill the cinemas. Um, we, where everyone is watching things all the time. But moreover... Books allow you to paint your own pictures. Mm. They allow an intimacy that I think the screen doesn't allow. Mm. I shared a, 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 a meme, I think that's the correct term, yeah. on, um, on our Shelf Indulgence Readers Club uh, Facebook group. And it said, I... Uh, I want to climb inside. I don't want to read books. I want to climb inside and live there. Mm, mm. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's more yeah. than the screen because when you read, there's that really intimate relationship between you and those pages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's your imagination that paints those pictures. Mm. Um, and I think all three of those poems, obviously, Dr. Seuss in very, very simple terms, but then... All three of those poems talk about how those worlds we create for ourselves. Because even though these authors take us on adventures, they don't spell out every detail. No. And that's why, you know, if you ask a, a class of children to all draw what a character from a book looks like, they all draw it slightly differently. Mm. There might be a unifying in character a characteristic trait um you know if a child draws harry potter he will have a lightning bolt scar mm. he may well look like daniel radcliffe if that child's been exposed to the films but if you're if you're if you've only read it then that picture will be what your mind created mm. Mm. um and then for me, in that final one, that final stanza of Junior Donaldson's, I finished my book and out I came. The cloak no longer hide me. My chair and my house are just the same, but I have a book inside me. Mm. 
And that, for me, really finished off because more over than anything, for me, the beauty of reading is they do change us. Yes, yeah. When you've read a book, a good book, it does stay with you in some way. Mm. You know, I can't, I can't read a murder mystery without thinking of a cure in these little graves themselves. Mm-hmm. Where it doesn't matter whose mystery it is, Hercule will be in my mind because he yeah. is my number one go-to detective. Um, and in, in in as much as I've seen all of the portrayals of him on screen, and I think they all have different um, positives about them, none of them are quite the Hercule that's in my mind. No. And yeah. it, you're right, it is that imagination. It's our interpretation, isn't it? But I, I remember um, when I was really little, um, every Christmas, my mum used to, mum and dad used to buy me, there was a, a compendium of stories that you could get. And there was a, a, a book for girls and a book for boys. And they used to do them every year. And um, the, I don't know, there must have been, I suppose, about 25, 30 stories in them. Um, quite a, they were quite a big book, so they were sort of A4 size. Um, and some of them were illustrating, some of, the, some of them were just stories. But to this day, I can remember two or three stories out of those books. I can remember what the cover looked like. But do you know what? I can remember what it smelled like. Yeah. I can remember the smell of that book. And um, I think it was it was about them that I fell in love with reading, and I I probably only just learned to read, so I wasn't very old at all. I was probably only about six or seven, no, probably about six. And I, I remember I loved it because it was the first book I could read myself. I could take it off the shelf, and I could get through it from cover to cover. And I could read it all, and and the comprehension was there, and and it was at that point that I realised this was just what what I did. I just loved reading, um. But but you're right, that book is inside me, and will always be inside me. Yeah. And a good book affects yeah. you like that, doesn't it? Because you carry bits of it around you. I mean, I I know for a fact, um, that when. If if I see something on TV or um, a, a, something that reminds me of an Agatha Christie story, um, I know that I can picture that story from the book that I've read of it, and I can quote lines out of it. That's when you know that a book has affected you, when, yeah. when it leaves an indelible mark on you to the point where you can just quote from it. Yes, or you know, someone says to you such and such, and you go, I know exactly the book I need to go and fetch. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I went sitting down to think about tonight's show and the poems I found, which all obviously I feel link in, but then wanting a link from those poems to what we're going to discuss now in that creation of literary worlds. Can you can you guess which author and which book I sprang to? Um, I would guess it's probably um, for you. It well, I, I would. I'm going to take a punt because it could be several, but I'm going to take a punt and I'm going to say Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. Good guess, but moreover, this book, written by my favourite of authors, uh, is a book about a child 
who loves reading and is possibly the most prolific of child readers that has ever been written about. Mm. Roald Dahl's Matilda. <laughs> but good guess. So I'm going to read a little bit from... Um, now, we know that Ro Matilda learns to read very early on, um, much unlike um, the rest of her family, who are almost illiterate idiots that the uh, goggle box addicted. Um, but I'm going to read you this little page now, page 21 from Matilda, from my original old battered copy from when I was a child. And this is after Matilda discovers libraries. Mm. And she's only very small. Mrs. Phelps, the librarian, um, explains to Matilda that public libraries are places that you can go and you can actually borrow books and take them home because Matilda's been reading books in the library but not taking them home because you know she could. Mrs. Phelps explains this and then she takes books home to read. So from then on, Matilda would visit the library only once a week in order to take out new books and return the old ones. Her own small bedroom now became her reading room and there she would sit and read most afternoons, often with a mug of hot chocolate beside her. She was not quite tall enough to reach things around the kitchen, but she kept a small box in the outhouse which she brought in and stood on in order to get whatever she wanted. Mostly it was hot chocolate she made, warming the milk in a saucepan on the stove before mixing it. Occasionally she made Bovril or Ovaltine. It was pleasant to take a hot drink up to her room and have it beside her as she sat in a silent room, reading in the empty house in the afternoons. The books transported her into new worlds and introduced her to amazing people who lived exciting lives. She went on olden day sailing ships with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. She travelled all over the world while sitting in her little room in an English village. And that, for me, is the essence of what we are tonight discussing, that literary world. Because I've, we, disc we discussed briefly in our planning about tonight's show what, what, what makes a literary world. And I thought, well, do you know, what makes a literary world is, is an author, or not even an author, but a writer picking up a pen. Oh, I think that's oversimplification because well, I think that if think, you look at the ones that really have an oh, impact yes. on us. Now, this is where I this is where I would like to qualify my statement. Um, I think the better a quality of a literary world depends on many factors, mm. but just by picking up a pen and writing, or to tapping a keyboard and writing. By becoming a writer, you are engaging in that initial moment of creating. Mm. The size and complexity of that literary world is only governed by you as the writer. You see, I have a, a slightly different perspective on that, in that for me, a literary world is something that is out of this world. So... So I would say that one of the most prolific writers is Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. But I don't think she created a world. I think she created puzzles set inside the world that we live in anyway. Because... Oh, well, this, is, well, this is where I want to get into the bones of what makes a literary world, because the world of Hercule Poirot 
is without a doubt in my mind it is a world yes it's our world she didn't choose any fantastical rules she chose to use the world the rules that our world is governed by because that's that surely has to be the first step in creating literary worlds is deciding the rules that govern it and the simplest option is just to choose our own world hmm it, yeah I, I think it's about it is about your interpretation I mean for me there are stories novels books trilogies um that are fictional but that doesn't mean to say that they are a created world so for me a created world is dune by Frank Herbert or or obviously the Potterverse by JK Rowling or um or Oz, you know, Frank Baum. These are worlds that are unworldly for us, where none of the rules that apply to us on a day-to-day basis apply in those circumstances. And it's that escapism for me that makes an author's world. And and I recognise that that's that's my definition. Yeah. It won't be everybody's definition. But well, for me, that's no. what makes it. Do you remember... A little while ago, we read a book called Tilly in the Book Wanderers. Yes. Pages and Cove is the series. Yeah. And th- this, for me, kind of came back to me as I was thinking about literary worlds, because there's a rule in that, bu- in that book, there's a rule that governs that literary world that the author, Anna James, I think, yeah. creates. And that is that for the period of time that the reader is reading that world exists mm. and you can meet the character and the, the book wanderers are those people who've got the special amount of imagination that once they are in a library or a bookshop where the magic of book is particularly strong they can meet the characters from these books but once you shut the book that character and anything that you made happen in that world is reverted back to normal. And that made me think, well, what is, what is a world? What is reality? And I, 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 I'd said to you before the show started, I started getting into deep, deep thoughts because, you know, I was starting to think on the lines of the matrix and uh, the long earth by Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter and these worlds, these other worlds, are just one very tiny step away from our own. Hmm. And But the thing that they have in common is that the normal rules don't apply. But surely, on so in the long earth, the only rule that doesn't apply on Dayton Earth our earth is the rule that we don't have stepping technology but that's enough to make it different isn't it it is that, but, it's that but, bit that's okay, enough to make but, it different. but then let's 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 rewind to some of the early science fiction writers mm. and you know some of those inventions some of those ideas are now a reality and 
I mean, maybe I'm going a little bit too deep by thinking about quantum mechanics um, and quantum physics, but, you know, are these other realities actually out there in some way, shape or form? And, you know, like I say, I went down a deep rabbit hole here, Wendy, uh, and into the meaning and matter of uh, space and reality. But, you know, there's that wonderful quote in uh, Harry Potter when um, Harry in the final book says to Dumbledore, but sir, is this real? Isn't it all happening in my head? And Dumbledore replies, well, of course it's all happening in your head, Harry, but why should that mean it isn't real? Mm. And therein lies my question and quandary about what make because for me, the world of Hercule Poirot is real because and different to our own. And this is and this is maybe maybe this is one of the defining characteristics. Because what Agatha did when she wrote the second Hercule Poirot book is it the consequences of his actions in the first book still existed. And as the series is written and developed and characters are met, he then meets those characters again later on. And what happened with those characters in the earlier books has still happened for him. But you see, I think that's what makes it of, it, it's still of this world because the, the standard rules apply. And what's really interesting about the way that Christie writes is that the focal point of her books is always around the individual's reactions, the character's reactions to those normal rules of society. So, yeah. so why is it in some of her books that a family member can quite coolly top one of their family members because they want to get their hands on their money? Or, you know, somebody will... Um, will murder somebody else because of jealousy or some will do it because, you know, they covet something that they um, they own. They Her books are about sifting through that, that human detritus of how they do or don't deal with the normal rules of life, whether they think they're outside of that or not. But for me, what makes something like Hunger Games completely different is that they they don't have our rules. In fact, in a lot of cases, their rules in their world are completely the opposite to the way that we function. And it's that, that shocking nature where we face that. I mean, particularly Hunger Games is, is a world I've thought quite a lot of when we were thinking about doing tonight's programme. Because it's quite dystopian, um, but the parallels in terms of competitiveness, in terms of the power of social media, about how um, style uh, is more important nowadays than substance. If you think about those underlying themes, they are very relevant, but it's set in a situation where the normal rules don't apply. So they can get away with more. They can they can take you right up to the wire and, and make you face some really big questions, but they do it in a safe environment because you know it's not your world. 
Yes. Um, and I think that's why, for me, but there's still human reactions, aren't there? There's still humans. Oh, yeah. And then that's... So, in a way, it's just pushing humans to greater extremes, putting them into... You know, it's almost like lab rats, isn't it? If yes. I put humans into this circumstance, how will they respond? How will they react when these buttons are pushed and pressed? Yeah, absolutely. And what makes a really good story is when, as a reader, you're convinced by the reaction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would. Yeah, it's believable. They would react that way to that. To that. And when you're drawn into the story and you find that you're really, you know, you're really rooting for some of the characters and you absolutely hate some of the others because they behaved in a way that is, you know, contrary to the way that you, that you would behave or, the, or what you think is acceptable. So, so there's that sort of author's world where you're taken out of yourself, taken out of your comfort zone, taken out of what you're familiar with and faced with a, an alternative world that has got different rules. And I think that takes us places and it allows our imagination to, to go with it. But then there are some authors that take that another stage on from that, which is the likes of Ben Aranovich and the Rivers of London series. Yeah. I mean, I I absolutely, I would never have picked that book up, I, I don't think, and, no, and bought it. that would it. never have appealed to you under no more circumstances. No, it wouldn't. And yet I'm so pleased that Johnny recommended it because it's opened up to me a series where it takes you that stage on because these are not ordinary human beings. These are people, humanoid people, but they have, special powers they can do things some of them are even you could argue different species that are just masquerading as humans um and well, that opens up whole new dimensions of of how people the situations they find themselves in what they can do to combat that and i just that is a story that you can absolutely lose yourself in no entirely and there are many many examples of that way it's still based in our world, but it's got that extra set of rules. The Potterverse, yeah. for example, you know, yeah. the Potterverse is very much rooted in our world, mm. but with an incident or a set of rules that, and, and I think this is where for me, when I, I, you know, I think I said early on, I think the set of rules you choose to govern are very important. And if you mm. the easiest world to create is a world where our own rules are the ones you follow, because then you don't have to worry about what the rules are. But you are restricted by them. You've got to, you know, you can't just have a book float across the room because you've written it in our world. Mm. But once you've created that world and then started giving it rules, and this is where I think, and you're completely right, you know, Ben Aronovich has given a set of rules to Rivers of London and they apply to that world. And, that, and, and, th and that's important because it doesn't give him completely free license. Yeah. Yeah. When we see very small children, write, uh, When we see children starting to problem solve and create and play games and role play and a problem occurs, well, that's fine because they just create a rule around it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but as an adult, 
we get upset by that. We get upset by, well, you can't just bend the rules. The rules exist. Rules exist for a reason. There's a reason why you can't just do that. Oh, well, you know, uh, I'm going to walk through that wall now. No, you can't walk through a wall. Well, no, I can't. I imagined it, so I did. Yeah. No, no, there are rules. And as grown-ups, we, we like rules. Mm. Um, some children are very, very fond of rules. But once, once rules exist, they give us that formation, they give us that scaffolding to build upon. Yeah. And that's when, when authors break, if an author breaks one of their own rules, you know, huge quantities of readers can mm. completely abandon a series. Absolutely, absolutely. You know? um, and I think, as you were saying, there's, there's that next level, but then there's, there's a next level even beyond that. And that's where you've not just said created a set of rules, but you start creating a history Hmm. The Potterverse has a history hmm. that isn't in all of the books. It's in the it's in the thousands. If it's I don't know how many there are, but it's in the many many notebooks that J.K. Rowling has. Hmm. Uh, it's available online. It's available in lots of other books that have been published about the Potterverse. But there is a history of the Potterverse. Hmm that contains set events that happen, that govern what happens in the future of the Potterverse. Mm. In a similar way, Tolkien created a, a history from Middle-earth. Yeah. It didn't necessarily known in all of the books, but it was necessary for his creation of that world because mm. that history created what happened. Um, George R. R. Martin with Westeros and the Game of Thrones series. You know, the history of what brought the uh, Targaryens across to Westeros from Esteros, uh, from Essos rather, and all of that, it, it's all an important part of what makes it the world it now is. Mm. And I think you can go be, uh, beyond and further from that. You can, you can go from not just having a history, but some literary worlds have their own mythologies, their own languages. Mm. Mm. And, and, I mean, and some of it, you mean, Tolkien, I suppose, must be... I can't think of anyone who's gone to the depth... No, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. creation of a world where he wrote several languages... I mean, I don't think he was. He's not. Um, he's not typical, is he? Because no. if you look at what he did, the a level of detail, the level of history, the level of um, social structure that he put in place was almost fanatical in terms of the way he ran. Completely fanatical. Yeah. You know, it, the level of detail and depth of the governing of the world he created was once he created it, it was it was in stone. Mm. Um, it governed his writing as much as his imagination did. Well, in fact, um, his son is still interpreting, and his grandson is still interpreting the notebooks that he, he wrote because mm. he was prolific, wasn't he, in terms of... The Lord of the Rings and um, that world that are created, Middle Earth, and 
Um, and so all of that writing, they've been able, obviously, because they had his original notes, they've been able to um, to analyse and uh, and to extrapolate what, what would have happened next. Yeah. Um, and that is fairly fanatical. And entirely, I mean, you know, I say created languages, when you see the Elvish script mm. in the books, that's, that is actual Elvish. He wrote the language. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember we did we did talking at school when I was probably I was only about thirteen or fourteen, I would think, um, when we did it at school. And um, I remember teaching myself the copy of the book that we had had got the rune alphabet in the uh, on the cover, and I remember teaching myself the rune alphabet. And I used to send notes to people in in the rune um, alphabet. Um, and thought it was great fun because nobody had got a clue what I was doing. No. Um, yeah, and, that, and all that says is that I'm a bit. Of, I've always been a bit of a nerd, but um, but it is because of that detail. It's something that you could get lost in, and if oh, your yeah. imagination's strong enough, then it just draws you in, doesn't it? The only other imaginary universe that I think can come close to competing, and this this is possibly controversial. The world of Star Trek. Yeah, the, I would. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Now, the difference is the universe of Star Trek was not created by one man. No. Initially, yes, Gene Roddenberry created the universe of Star Trek, but since then, many, many people have contributed and helped. You know, you can learn Klingon, you can learn Vulcan. The, the, these languages exist as complete languages. You can get a degree. Yeah. In yeah. Um. They exist as complete languages because linguists have written them. Mm. Um, you know, when you see the Klingon writing on screen in Star Trek, it's not just made up gibberish symbols. That, that they're actual words. Yeah. Um, but the difference there being where the world, the universe of Star Trek, has taken entire teams of people to create the amount of work was needed for that universe. Mm. Tolkien created his entire world by himself, including its languages, mythologies, histories, rules, you know, laws. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I mean, and for me, I mean, I think that there is that thing that I would come back to with Agatha and her creation of the world of Hercule Poirot, you know, for Hercule, the book isn't the start and the end. Because in the next book, those same rules, the things that have happened before still apply. And in a similar way, as you go through Middle Earth, the things that have happened previously apply and, and, and you know are solid fact. Yeah, and but he's operating in places like Clapham and Surrey and um and Scotland. He's not operating in... No, so the depth, the depth yeah. of creation isn't there. But that world for Poirot, if you... It's it's that thing of, if you pick up book 20, everything that happened in the first 19 Poirot books has helped shape that character. It has, but I would say it's shaping the character, not the surroundings. So and and for me, you can and no, they make a very good living out of this. But you can you can do 
Christie tours, you can do a Hercule tour, you can do a Miss Marple tour, where you can actually go and visit some of the places that inspired her to write about them. Yeah. Very, very difficult to do that if you're looking at C.S. Lewis and Narnia. You can visit Hobbiton. I have visited Hobbiton. It's a real place now. <laughs> it is, although the farmer that owns it is very grumpy. And wow. um, and you have to go on a good day because if, he, if he's having a bad day, he won't let you in. Yeah, I can believe that. Um, <laughs> but there, there is that there is that thing, isn't there? That it is, and that's for me why in some of the... For me, it's that history, the shared history of the books, the stories. It's not you pick up a story and everything's reset. Mm. Because and that's what what kind of got me with pages and co. When you pick up a book and read it, then you go back and read it again. Everything that's happened in that book hasn't happened at the start of it. It's all been reset. But when you pick up book two, everything that happened in book one is real, and therefore. By continuing the world that you've altered, that you've changed, that you've created, that you've shaped in some small way, because a character has learned something, has died, has, you know, that character doesn't come back to life in the next book. No. They're dead. And so because of that, there is that nature of creation for me. And I think... As you look at the the depth of experience of characters, and this is where I mean, what I want to go on to talk about now is with where George R. R. Martin. Mm. Now, the world of Westeros and the Game of Thrones series is obviously fantastical. It's not set on our Earth. Um, it's a fantastical world where there are different rules that apply. There are magics. There are things that are not of this world. There are eldritch in nature. But, again, they are humans for the most part. Mm. And they are governed by what makes us human. That's why we relate to them. That's what makes them attractive to us to read as characters. And let's take the character of Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister, at the start of book one, when you meet him, and not far into book one, when he pushes young Bran out of the window, you loathe Jamie Lannister. You hate. With He is one of the characters you would gleefully see murdered and killed. But by the end, by God, you love that man. Mm. You love that man. You empathise with him. You feel for him. You, you know, and for you, it, it's it's it's. If J.K. Rowling could make me feel sorry for and love Umbridge, mm. that's the level of yeah. depth that George R.R. R. Martin does for me in Jamie Lannister's journey, and and to do that to create over what is a ridiculously large number of words across this whole series. Yeah, yeah. Which he hasn't finished yet. But yeah, it, we're talking 
an awfully long journey. The character arcs are huge, colossal. I remember when I was reading, I forget exactly which one it was, because the whole Song of Fire, Ice of Fire, the whole series, does stop blurring one into the other. And you're like, was that from Sword of Storm of Swords or mm. Feast, Feast of Crows? Oh, I can't remember which was in which. And, and Brienne of Tarth, who played on the screen by Gwendolyn Christie beautifully, there is something lost in Brienne's story on the screen that in the books, oh, every in, in if you've not read any George R. R. Martin and the Game of Thrones series, it's divided into chapters which are titled with the name of the character from whose perspective that chapter is told. Mm. And so you'll get to, you know, uh, Tyrion or you'll get to a Brienne chapter or you'll get to a... Uh, Jamie cap chapter and you're like okay I know so I know I know where we are I know, I know where we are I know what's happening in this character's story arc and it might be that actually you've got in chronologically speaking you'll read a chapter and go through like six months and then when the next chapter picks up you've actually gone back in time seven months to pick up where that character last was seen. Mm. So it doesn't quite work chronologically, and sometimes you end up time travelling a little bit to bring all the characters along with you, because they're all off in various far-flung mm. parts of the world. And we are talking, like, you know how people who've watched Game of Thrones go, oh, there's so many characters in it? Yeah. Yeah, there aren't, because they cut loads out. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> they cut loads of characters out. There's loads more characters in Game of Thrones, the books, than there are on the, t the TV. And um, every time you got to a Brienne, Brienne is sent on this mission to go and look for the Stark girls, the daughters of Ned Stark. She's sent off to go and find Sansa and Arya. And she's off on this mission trying to hunt them down. And she's one. And, you know, it's like, here's a haystack, off you go. Yeah. Two needles, go and get them. Because she's, you know, there's no, there's no modern technology. There's no way of... She's just literally got to listen to what's, oh, well, I saw him in such a place, and then get on the horse and ride to there and see if they're there. And if they're not there, well, what do I do next? Where do I, where do I look now? And she's chasing them around Westeros, trying to track them down. And every time you get to a Brienne chapter, you're like, oh, man, oh, no, not again. Oh. Because for ages, she's on this arduous, boring journey where nothing happens for ages. And it, and if it was just that story, you'd give up. You would give up. If you took all the Brienne bits and put them together in one story, you'd give up. You wouldn't, you wouldn't make it through. But because you're then like, you've just read a bit of Brienne and then it gives you a bit of Tyrion and it's more exciting and it's, uh, you know, and then you jump to a Jamie bit and then you jump to a um, Khaleesi bit and you're all over the place and you're getting all these different bits and, but then you get to another brain, but you go, oh, God, no, not again. So can I ask a question then, Jim? Yeah. What does that character add to the stories? Well, she she then, she, her huge story arc, she actually goes through an awful lot. And at the beginning of the story arc and at the end of the story arc, there's lots and lots and lots of more detail that make her a wonderful character. Mm. But part of that has to come from the fact that you understand her severe sense of duty that you know you like 
if I was looking for these girls, I'd have given up by now. Okay, but my argument to that would be, this is very controversial. I'm okay. about to disagree with J.R.R. Martin, what you did to me with uh, Dan Brown. Um, so if that's the case, if he was a better writer, would he have been able to do that in a more concise and meaningful way? Oh, no, he's done perfectly. He's done perfectly because what happens is through those bits of Brienne, they're just long enough for you to not turn off to the book, but you feel her pain, you feel her agony, you feel you feel for the character in this fruitless, horrible mission she's been sent on. But don't you think, oh, you see, there's a bit of me. I, I struggle with authors who are what I consider to be, as a reader, um, I consider to be self-indulgent. So, so I think they are they write that sort of stuff because they like to write it, not necessarily because it adds to the enjoyment of the reader, although clearly it does in your case because you enjoy it. And not only that, but also then with what happens at the end of that mission, when she then discovers what happens to her next and then she meets up with Jamie and he's had his hand chopped off and she fights him in a bear pit and all the rest of it, you then get the sense of, oh, my goodness, the sense of duty and everything that she's got that she's been through and now she's in this situation and you end up sympathising in such a way with this character that you couldn't have done if you hadn't been on that journey with her. Mm. You see, I think that that's about... um, that is about finding your readership because I think that, and there is no two ways about it, he does have a readership. You know, his books almost have a cult following, don't they? So and I think with anything, you know, we all have our own particular thing we go to. Yeah, yeah. And it, it clearly ticks the boxes of lots of people. Um, but this is readers, this is where we get to say in things because we're able to cr- construct our our own rules about what we will and what we won't read and what we yeah. will and what we won't tolerate from an author. And and in the same way as I've just said that, you know, if you look at Dan Brown, and I know we've had this conversation before, I'm much more tolerant of, of Dan, Dan Brown's, let's say, idiosyncrasies <laughs> than you are because yeah. Yeah. those are my rules. So I think it's okay for him to do what he does. And you don't. Absolutely right. And as and there, the reader, there, you get the chance to make that decision, yeah. don't you? And and surely then that circles back to the point of Dumbledore in that, well, of course, it's happening inside your head, Harry, but why isn't that mean why should that mean it isn't real? Because you're choosing to accept that world. Yeah. You're choosing to accept that creation. Yeah. I'm very conscious of time, Wendy, because we now that we are uh, on the air, we must make sure we're under the hour mark rather we than must, our, we must. Our olden day stylings of rambling on for hours and hours as we uh, so easily can. I want to quickly do um, what has Granny read as our segment. Okay. So in the last week, Granny has been on something of a mission uh, with Ellie Griffiths. So from the Dr. Ruth Galloway series in yes. the past week, Granny has read The Crossing Places, The Janus Stone, The House at Sea's End, A Room Full of Bones, Dying Fall, The Ghost Field, The One in Blue and The Outcast Dead. Wow. She's also read 
The Strange Diaries by Ellie Griffiths, um, which is not a Ruth Galloway, but another one of, of Ellie Griffiths. Yeah. So she's had a very big Ellie Griffiths week. Um, and finally, in uh, the last segment of the show, what has caught your eye, Wendy? Is there anything this week that's jumped out at you? Um, yes, there is. There are a couple of things. But before I say what, what's caught my eye, I have to say, what did she think of Ellie Griffiths? Oh, she loves her. Does she? she I'm so her. pleased because again, that's another author we may not have um we may not have come across. And uh and it's given us a chance to do that, hasn't it? Yeah. And uh, sadly, these are all now in my to be red pile, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> Oops. Okay. So, um, so thank Granny for um for leaping in. So, um, I've got a couple of things that have caught my eye. Um, a, a, a an author that I've never come across before. Um, you may have come across him, Jim. Um, an author called David McCloskey. Um, and it's yeah, a book called well. The Damascus Station. Does it ring a bell with you? Yes, it does. I've not read it, but it does ring a bell. Um, yeah, I'd never come across him before. Um, and uh, but I did find the 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 reason I was attracted was that I found out looking at him, uh, the the cover of the book really appealed to me. But I found out he's ex CIA. Yeah, it's a spy novel, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, I mean, really, uh, it looks to be an absolutely stonking thriller. Um, so it really did uh, appeal to me, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, so that was the first thing, and that's definitely on my um, my to be read pile now. Um, and then the other one, which I thought was uh, again not um, it was was something that I've I've not come across before at all. Um, and it's uh, a new author for me. Again, you may have come across this person. Um, but it's uh, oh god, the name's just escapes me. Oh yes, it's a book called In Ascension by Martin McInnes. The name rings well, not the book, but the name. Okay. Um and and again, this was I really quite like this because um it's quite a dark story. Uh, from what I can gather, but it's a it's a, a thriller, um, but it's uh, deals with some really dark themes, and um, it was actually the cover that really attracted me because on the cover it's an open sea with just you can just see somebody's head um, up just above the water, and I have this um, irrational fear of, of uh, being left out in an open ocean on my own. Um, and so it really triggered me. I think it was that that made me look at it. So, again, I thought I might explore that. It's not the sort of book that I would normally read. But you know what? I thought, hmm, I think it would be quite a, a, a deviation for me to read something like that. So those are my two that have caught my eye. Well, the one that's caught mine, and I've bought it, um, I'm a big believer in listening to the universe. I know it sounds very hippie of me, but there'll be a period of time when perhaps one name will keep cropping up all the time. Sign, but you keep seeing th something recurring. You're like, oh, what is, what am I getting? And this name, Alan Moore, 
kept cropping up, kept appearing on my Facebook feed or in Instagram posts. or uh, And then um, I saw an email from um, a reputable bookseller um, that I was, I was actually sorting through old emails. And this was one that I was deleting from ages ago uh, because it came out in 2021, the 25th anniversary edition of Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire. Mm. And it's a book that's set across six millennia in uh, central England. His oh. hometown of, uh, I think it's Northampton. But yeah, and, and it's like just Alan Moore tells this story in 12 chapters of over six millennia, 12 different characters that all lived in the same place in England. And well, that it, sounds it, unusual, doesn't it? Yeah. It's at the back of the book. Um, in a story filled with lust, madness and ecstasy, we meet 12 characters living in the same region of central England over the pattern over the span of 6,000 years. The narratives are woven together in patterns of recurring events, strange traditions and uncanny visions. A cave boy loses his mother, falls in love and learns a deadly lesson. A murderous impersonate. A murderess impersonates her victim. A fisherman believes he has changed species. A Roman emissary realises the bitter truth about the empire. A crippled nun is healed miraculously by an, appoint, by an apparition. An old crusader has his faith destroyed by witnessing the ultimate relic. Two witches, lovers, burn at the stake. Each interconnected tale is a path that traces a journey of discovering the secrets of the land. And it just jumped out at me. I'm like, oh... I need to read this. Mm. And actually, he's he's more famous for his uh, writing of graphic graphic novels and comic books. Oh, right. That's oh, that's probably why I've not come across him before. Yeah, that's what he's predominantly known for. Mm. But this is this is his this was his debut novel twenty five years ago, and, the, and last year twenty twenty one they released the the special anniversary edition. Okay. So that's what's caught my eye, and I've bought it. Right. We'll have to add it to our list at some point. We'll perhaps just see what happens. <laughs> right. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, um, shelf indulgence this week, a literary world. We've brought that to you. What makes a literary world? And I encourage all of you at some point to pick up a pen and have a go at creating your own. Um, but in the meantime, next week we will be, if you want to read along with us, you can start it now. We'll be reading Snowblind by Jonas Ragnarsson. We're departing from um, Tartan Noir and heading into the world of Nordic Noir, and heading to Iceland, to the land of the midnight sun, or in this instance, the never-ending night. I have to say, I have started this, and I got as far as the prologue, and I'm booked, Jim. Oh, I do excellent. like it. Yes. Excellent. I was hoping you would be. Yeah. Superb. Well, until next week, ladies and gentlemen, we're looking at the first half of Snowblind by Jonas Ragnarsson. Good reading. Happy reading. This show is part of Microbrew Radio, Burton on Trent's community radio station. You can hear this and plenty of other shows over on microbrewradio.com. Find our app on the iOS or Android stores, or just say Alexa, 
Play Micro Brew Radio. And if you like what you hear, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks.